have you ever wondered why our political system is so fractured? Our nation, and every nation really, has had disagreements over how much citizens should be taxed, whether or not to get involved in a war, or which government programs deserve an increase or decrease in the budget. Every nation has those disagreements. Now what I'm asking is more about political tribalism. For the last year or so, leading up to this election, um, I have been thinking a lot about why we are so divided as a nation. I've been so dissatisfied with the political culture. And so I've recently read a book that's fascinating. It's called The Red and the Blue, and the, the subtitle is The 1990s and the Birth of Political Tribalism. It's by Steve Kornacki, a political correspondent from NBC. And he gives a detailed look at how the politics of the 1990s created much of the mess that we're in right now. This history is interesting enough, but what the book shows me is that events like today don't just happen. They're not accidental. There's always a cause to those things. There's always smaller things that contribute to something much larger. And in our case, we have a broken system where most aren't interested in compromise and where there seems to be no room for middle ground. To get elected, it seems like you either have to be extreme right or extreme left. And politics has always been dirty. We know that. But I'm not speaking of dirty politics. I'm speaking of political tribalism. It's never been so sharply tribal. Now, while the broken system is problematic, it's merely a symptom or sign. It's a symptom of culture that is becoming less intellectually diverse. And if you don't believe me, think of all the close friends that you have and tell me how many of those actually disagree with you sharply politically. The numbers don't bear it out. The numbers and polls say that most people even Christians, most people only associate with people who agree with them politically. Think about the, where you get your news. Does the news broadcast already agree with you politically? The broken system happened because of something far more sinister. It's a broken society. And in our text today, we'll, we see the result of not a broken society, but rather a broken church. We see a church that has splintered a church that has become defined by their sinfulness, and they're now suing one another. These issues were caused by something more sinister, their sin that has remained a part of their life, a part of who they are after they were converted to the faith. So the question that I keep asking myself is this, what makes us different from the world? For as long as I've been preaching, I've made the case as best as I can that the church matters and that we are to be separate, distinct, and different from those outside of the Christian faith and outside of this local church. We are to be noticeably different. Now, I don't mean to go live in a communal dwelling and have no connection with people outside of the faith. That would actually be the exact opposite of what I mean. To do that would be going against what the Bible has already said. But there has to be, there must be something that shows that we are not the same as the rest of the world. We can't live isolated lives, but we also can't fit into the culture either. See, we all know that this is something that many Christians don't seem to balance correctly. I certainly don't. 
If our coworkers, our neighbors, and our friends don't know that we do everything for the sake of the gospel and the cause of Christ, then we're doing it wrong. If we don't have any coworkers, neighbors, or friends who are not Christians, we are doing it wrong. Even in a geographic place like East Tennessee that's far more culturally Christian than most places, we should still be recognizable. But so much of the time, we want to blend in and flow with culture. That may not seem like a fair characterization, but think through all the instances where you've thought that someone who claims to follow Christ is living in a way that runs contrary to it. I I failed in my own life, thinking through my own history. How many times have I preached Christ and then done the exact opposite? And for the previous five chapters, Paul has been making a case to those in the local church. They've caused problems because they're not acting and behaving like Christians. They're acting like people who've never experienced the grace of Christ before. They're behaving like unbelievers. There is no difference between the church and the people for the church in Corinth. They've been splintering over which teacher was the most popular. They had mistreated Paul. They had allowed a man to have an affair with his stepmother and refused to do anything about it. And now in chapter 6, we see that the church was doing something else. They were settling disputes with one another, not inside the church, but rather in the secular courts. Now, for most people, most Americans, that's not that big of a deal. We are a litigious society. We sue each other a lot. There are lots and lots of lawsuits that happen. Turn on the television, and what advertisements do you see the most? Lawyers, right? While the court system is God's grace to dispense justice, it's God's common grace over all people to dispense justice, he's given us the tools inside the church to handle these problems. And as we'll see this morning, when Christians have disputes, it's the local church that should be handling these issues, not the courts with people who don't know Christ. Now, as we go through this passage, consider something. One of the defining characteristics of true, authentic faith is that we love others. We not only love those who love us, but we love those who hate us. We not only love them, but we sacrificially serve them so that they may be blessed. Simply put, our entire lives should be focused on glorifying God through the service of others, first in the church and then out in the community. Court system doesn't work this way. Our judicial system is not built on love and self-sacrifice. Rather, it's built on black and white, right and wrong. The Christian faith deals with what brings God glory and what helps our testimony to shine brightest. And as we've seen, often court cases are not decided with what shines God's glory the brightest. We simply don't operate with the same standards that our judicial system does. We're grateful for law and we're grateful for justice, but the Bible tells us to go further than what's demanded by law. That's why this passage matters. I have three main points today. The first point this morning is that the church in Corinth were mishandling lawsuits. Point number two is they were not living the gospel. And finally, point three is that they misunderstood the gospel. This passage matters because it calls us to a higher standard than low expectations. So the first thing that we see here is that the church was mishandling lawsuits, and this is found in verses 1 and 6. 
Cases between two Christians, members of the same church, were being brought before ungodly judges. It's not to say that the judges were unjust. They just were not believers. They weren't Christians. Now, from our perspective, that may not sound so bad. We have an issue that we can't resolve, so we take it to court and let the legal system figure out a solution. But think about it this way. Fellow church members have an issue, and they try to figure out the solution, but nothing seems to work. So maybe they gather to pray, and still nothing, still disagreement. So they take it to a court where a judge who may or may not be a Christian and is certainly not a member of their local church and has no relationship with those people, no care about their standing after the case, is brought, the case is brought before him to judge. Now I'm giving you this scenario because it shows that God's standard in dealing with issues is not only correct but also incredibly practical. Now keep that scenario in your minds and consider this. Instead of two people taking it to the courts, they take it to the church. They meet with the elders who are representative of the entire church to try to figure out a solution. And in the Corinthian church and ours and every other church that exists, the elders would know the people involved. Yes, they would have relationships that possibly could cause bias, but the fact is that God has already equipped those men and the church has already affirmed those men to not have those biases that can look past those biases. In other words, the elders and the church have a vested interest in making sure that the two parties find a way to reconcile Because the unity of the church is at stake. So what does Paul say is an appropriate way to handle this? Look at verses 2 through 5. He says that Christians, the church, should judge these cases. It's the church who should be dealing with matters involving its members. Now, before we go any further, these are issues dealing with property, dealing with disputes over definitions, I am 100% certain without a shadow of a doubt that the Apostle Paul is not talking about people in the church being abused. Far too many churches have taken this passage and said, well, we've heard reports of this child being abused, but we're going to deal with it inside the church. That's not what Paul is talking about. Just about two years ago, the Houston Chronicle reported over the span of 20 years, they could account for 700 people who had been victimized by Southern Baptist Church leaders. Many of these instances went unreported because the church misunderstood or misapplied this passage. So when they would get reports of children being hurt, they would shuffle the pastor away to some other place. Hear me carefully. If there is even a hint of someone being abused in this church, I'm not bringing it to you. I'm taking it to the cops. These verses are not about criminal issues. That goes to the police and for punishment and handling in the court system, and that's what God's standard says. Paul is referencing minor matters that could lead to litigation. Again, what does it say about our testimony when we can't get along? This leads to a natural question then. Well, what about the fact that Christians aren't trained in the law? Does this hurt Paul's case? Well, we see two things happening in verses 2 and 3. First, the saints will judge the world. Now, that's not me and you sitting and judging the world by ourselves. No, this is the saints standing with Jesus. The, the picture that you should get in your head right now is the church, the bride standing with the groom. Jesus says in Revelation 3.21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
Second, the saints will judge the angels. Now, these two statements doesn't mean that we're passing out judgment, but rather that humanity will rule over the angels. We see this in Hebrews 2, where it says that Jesus didn't come to redeem the angels, but rather us, humanity. This ties into Paul's statement because he's saying that if the church will one day sit with Christ on his throne and that we are the objects of his affection, why is it so hard that we cannot seem to find a resolution to ordinary disputes? On the basis of these two points, Paul says that the body of Christ is competent to handle issues between believers in the church. He says this, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? The entire church should have more wisdom than the wisest unbeliever because the power of the Spirit resides in us. Appealing to secular courts shows that they have a low view of the church. Having a distorted picture of the local church or having a low view of the church will bring about so many problems for you and your faith, just as it did to the church in Corinth. That's what's happening here. Misunderstanding the church will lead to misunderstanding the gospel. So all Christians have the power of the Holy Spirit, and the church, when gathered together, is the place where we rely on each other for those good judgments. And in verse 5, Paul says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? In essence, what Paul is saying is that he wonders if they had been ignoring the gospel so long that they lost all the wisdom that they were given when they came to know Christ. So that was the first problem, mishandling lawsuits. Then in verses 7 and 8, we see another problem, that they were not living the gospel. I've hinted about this earlier, but I want to open this up a little bit more. The gospel is the glorious news that begins with the bad news. And the bad news is that God created his creation perfectly. And God rightly demands perfection from his creation. But we can't be that. There is no way that any of us can be good enough to please God on our own. No matter how good we are or how many good things that we do, the sad reality is that we can never get to where we can please God on our own. In ourselves, we are stuck. But the good news, the great news, is that God sent Jesus, his son, to be perfect for us and to suffer the wrath of God on the cross for us. Jesus gives us his perfection while taking our sin. So whenever I talk about the gospel, this is what I mean. But an unfortunate part of American evangelical history is that the gospel has been reduced to something that happens at the moment of conversion. The moment that we turn from our sin and give our lives to Christ, but that's it. For so long, the effectiveness of the gospel on the lives of believers stopped the moment that they trusted in Christ. But the truth is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the good news that God has defeated sin, defeated death, and promised eternal life to all who believe. Now I'm asking this with the greatest sincerity, the most sincerity that I can muster. How in the world can that stop the moment that I trust in Christ? I can't. See, the Christian life is a life that's dominated by the gospel. There's not one part of the Christian life that the gospel does not influence. And this was, unfortunately, not a major emphasis in many places for a long time. But it was important to Paul. That's why he says what he does in this passage. In the first half of verse 7, we see that these lawsuits between believers show that they were living a defeated life. Paul says, to have lawsuits with, at all with one another is already a defeat for you. 
Suppose another scenario. Two church members live next door to each other. And uh, at, at some point, uh, one of the church members gets a dog and wants to fence in his property so that his dog doesn't run away or make messes on the neighbor's yard. And, and so the, the, the person um, gets the, the city representative to come out, and he marks off the property line, but he encounters a problem. The neighbor without a dog had built a structure many years ago that cost a lot of money, and it happens to encroach on the neighbor's property. Property line goes straight through this structure. To those outside the church, the proper way to resolve this would be to have a friendly talk, and if that doesn't work, we'll go to court. But think about it. If you go to court with someone, you're going because you want to win the case. You want the outcome to be in your favor. So unless you have two perfect people in this dispute, one will leave happy and the other will leave upset. Both neighbors lose because their friendship is damaged, maybe beyond repair. They'll likely begin searching for new churches because they don't want to worship with someone that they dislike or disrespect so much. They may feel the necessity to move to another home so they don't have to look at this neighbor. In other words, both neighbors have lost and they are both suffering. Now this kind of behavior enters into the dispute with loss already because it's a guaranteed result. Both have lost. And in the second half of verse 7, we see that Christians must approach disputes differently than the world. Paul writes this, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Outside of the Christian faith, weakness is not something that anybody appreciates. We want to be tough. We don't want to let anyone walk all over us. We have our rights. But Paul says, wouldn't it be better for you and for your testimony to let that guy walk all over you? Wouldn't it be better for you to lose this than to lose your testimony? See, Christians suing each other don't just hurt themselves. They're hurting the church and the testimony of other believers. And this is what sacrificial living looks like. I think some take it too far. They give all the way their possessions away and they, they go live in poverty and squalor. But you know what? I think that they have a better idea than most American Christians do. That we're collecting more and more money, more and more possessions, bigger and better constantly. Listen to the words from Jesus in Mark 8. And the crowd, and calling the crowd to him, Jesus um, his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Time and time again, we see that worldly possessions mean nothing in the grand scheme of life. No one in their right mind would be on their deathbed with moments left and saying, man, if I just earned a few more million dollars, I'd be happy. No. Let me ask you this. If I gave you a million dollars right now, but taking that would ruin your testimony and damage this church, would you take it? Pride and selfishness came to define the church in Corinth, but the root of their problem went far far deeper. What brought about all of this was their sin. And Paul says this in verse 8, that those who cheat their brothers are sinning. The ones who sue each other in court are no better than someone who takes that by force. 
Now we've seen that lawsuits were the problem in the church, but they were only a symptom of a much bigger problem. The church was not living the gospel. But those problems stem from the final point this morning, and this is kind of the overarching thought, is that the church had misunderstood the gospel. In verse 9, Paul begins by saying this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul is saying that the people in the church of Corinth were behaving so poorly that there was no difference between them and those outside of the church. There was no difference between Christians and atheists. There were no difference between Christians and pagans. Not a difference. Christians were behaving like the unrighteous people who will not receive the promised blessing. Now just to be clear, it's not that their good deeds would have saved them from their sin and from the wrath of God They could have done exactly what Paul says, and they still would have been deserving of hell, just like you and just like me. But what Paul is saying is that if they have been forgiven by God through the work of Jesus, they have the righteousness of Jesus already given to them. That changes someone. It not only changes their heart, but it changes their behavior. In other words, if there is no outward change, there likely is no inward change. And to make this point, Paul gives a list of lifestyles that were and still common in the world outside of the church. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is referencing lifestyles, the way that someone lives and it defines who they are. When people think of this guy, do they think of him as a drunk? Yeah. That's his lifestyle. His debauchery, yeah. That's his lifestyle. It's what he values and how he lives. Now, it's not that those people are too bad for God's grace. Now, hear me on this too. We talk about right behavior and wrong behavior, but listen, no one is ever outside of the reach of God's grace. I want to be so clear about that. But we cannot be enslaved to sin if we're part of the family of God. We cannot serve two masters, and so if one belongs to Christ, lifestyle changes will follow. Now, something else to notice is that Paul is saying how foolish it is for Christians to bring disputes between people in the church to those who live these lifestyles. Two believers standing before an adulterer or a cheat or a drunk, it's foolishness. And then in verse 11, Paul says that Christians are no longer among the wicked. He says this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All Christians have been brought out of darkness and brought into light. I know I've said this a lot, but even though our works and nice lives don't save us, we should aim to do good works and live well because those are marks of a true faith. And those are the things that bring God glory. But the church in Corinth wasn't behaving this way. Where their behavior was problematic, but it wasn't just the behavior that was the problem. The biggest issue was that their behavior revealed that the church didn't understand or live out the gospel. The members of the church had forgotten, either on purpose or for lack of maturity, which means discipleship. Maybe there wasn't enough discipleship happening, and so everybody just kind of ran amok. They forgot that they were called to a higher standard than the world. Now, if you happen to be listening to me right now and you're not a Christian... I hope that this passage has done one thing above all else. I hope that you have been challenged to consider what being a Christian really means. If you're not well-versed in Christian lingo, you may think that we're a political group or some kind of religious club. 
I hope that you see that we're much more than that. I hope that you see how God has called his people to himself and then called us to gather together, united as local churches. But he's called us to not only live in covenant community, he's called us to live by a certain standard. It's his standard. And my guess is, if you're not a Christian, or maybe if, even if you are, you've had experiences with people who profess Christ that have turned you off. They weren't good. Maybe you've encountered judgmental people who look down on you or even yell at you for what you've done. I've seen Christians who seem to be more angry at people than they are the effects of sin on those people. And personally, for doing that, I'm sorry. Maybe you've experienced hypocrisy from Christians. I admit we have a long track record of saying one thing and then doing another. There is a list a mile wide of preachers who've stood behind pulpits and proclaimed one thing and then went home and did the exact opposite. The truth is that all Christians are hypocrites. We read the Bible, which tells us how to live, think, and believe, and yet we keep on doing the opposite. For a Christian, it feels like we're trapped between two worlds, not really coming, not really going, but it's not just a feeling, that's reality. In Romans 7, Paul, the same writer of 1 Corinthians, says this, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. What he's saying is that he knows what he should do, but sin and the flesh are so captivating. They're enticing. This is what every Christian deals with. We are all hypocrites, but we are so grateful that when we stand before God, God doesn't look at the hypocrisy of his people. He looks at the perfect righteousness of Jesus it's not our own good works that God sees. Because we've put our faith in Christ, Christ takes the penalty for our sin and gives us his righteousness. We can't be good enough for God, so Jesus gives his, us his goodness. Now, if you're not a Christian, we apologize, or I apologize for two things. First, focusing on changing behaviors rather than focusing on change of heart. Second, just like the church in Corinth, we've neglected the gospel. Far too long, churches have preached a message of works rather than a message of God's grace. We focused on getting people to stop doing bad things, and we've neglected to tell people that they can't make these changes on their own anyway. Paul couldn't do it, and we can't either. We failed to give people the comfort that only Christ can provide. This morning, if you're not a Christian, I want you to consider these things. No one's going to put you on the spot. You don't have to stand before the church. You don't have to speak. You can respond right where you are, or you can come here if you want. But please consider what the church in Corinth forgot. Please consider that God sent his son so that we could be made clean and whole. Paul called the church to behave as believers because that's what a believer wants above all else, to glorify God. The church has failed. Our church and every other church has failed over the years. To proclaim the grace of God versus changing behavior. Listen, I'm all about changing behavior, but it's in the wrong order. 
And so if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Christ, my pleading with you this morning is forget the behavior for a moment and think about the the filthiness of what's inside your heart, what's inside of all of us. Think about the heart problems that you have, not the outward. Come to know Christ who will clean the outside, but more importantly, he will clean the inside. Would you pray with me?